0: Welcome to our Beyond 20 campaign, a celebration of One Joshua Group's 20 years of service excellence. This is a One Joshua Group production, providing access to information and experts to help improve quality of life and health outcomes. So, George, I have to, first of all, thank you for accepting our invitation. Um, Just to give you a little background about why we are doing this podcast series, Um, we've been so fortunate to be able to enter our 20th year in business, and um, you've been with us along this journey for many of those 20 years. And we are grateful for that, and particularly what we've learned from you and just to commend you on your dedication for something that is um, important to all of us. But I want to let our viewing audience know that we have joining us today in our 20th Beyond Celebration here at One Joshua Group, um, one of our friends, Dr. George Perry. And Dr. Perry is professor and of the Sims Foundation Distinguished University Chair in Neurobiology at the University of Texas at San Antonio, and he is indeed one of the top distinguished Alzheimer's disease researchers. He has more than a 1,000 publications, and he's one of the top 100 cited scientists in neuroscience and behavior. He's also one of the top 25 scientists in free radical research. Um, Dr. Perry is uh, very proud of his Azorean Portuguese heritage. And if you spend some time with him, uh, he will tell you a lot more about that. But most of all, Dr. Perry is committed to the science and to the education and to the treatment of patients who have various stages of Alzheimer's and also to their uh, families. Of course, his research focuses primarily on Alzheimer's disease, and he's also working on ways of having more effective treatment. Dr. Perry, thank you so very much for joining us today. Thank you very much for
1: having me to talking about a topic which I've spent the last 40 plus years of my life focused on, and even more, for the celebrating 20 years of success with the One Joshua Group.
0: Dr. Perry, thank you so very much. And we appreciate you being with us on this journey. Um, This topic of Alzheimer's related diseases is very personal to me and to many of my friends who uh, are, are working with their family members and their friends. So tell us about Alzheimer's and Alzheimer's related diseases.
1: You know, if you look back in time, I've been studying Alzheimer's disease for 42 years. And if you look prior to that point, say 50 years ago, this was a disease that was not appreciated as even important, because it was first described uh, by Dr. Alzheimer in 1906 of a middle-aged woman well in her 50s who developed cognitive and behavioral issues. And she became the index case for Alzheimer's disease. And people that have an onset in their 50s are rare, it was only in the late seventies that people appreciated that Alzheimer's disease was a more common condition of the elderly, people over 65. And in fact, now we know it's a disease that increases after age 60, where it doubles in its occurrence every five years. So your chance of having it at 60 is fairly low, 70 moderate, 80 and 85 different groups are affected like, so that one third of people are affected or some minority groups such as African-Americans may even be 60% of the people affected if they live beyond the age of 85. So what was a rare condition now is appreciated as a common condition. The other question I'm asked always, and it's actually the hardest one to ask, but first I'll answer the simplest one. What's the difference between Alzheimer and dementia? Dementia is a loss of cognitive function, usually higher cognitive function. And it could happen any time in life. Could happen after a stroke, could happen after a concussion. There are many reasons. Alzheimer's disease is a type of dementia. Among the elderly, 60 to 70% who lose cognitive function have dementia, have Alzheimer's disease. Beyond that, to know what Alzheimer's disease is, people are still working to understand all the subtypes. And it's not completely clear. In fact, I just wrote a uh, uh, guidance regarding diagnosis of the disease in which I suggested the way people were diagnosing it, which detached the diagnosis away from people. There is a move to move it to the biology without the people. What's significant about Alzheimer's disease is not whether your body has plaques and tangles or changes in blood markers. What's significant is you lose function. You lose touch with your family. You lose touch with yourself. And uh, that really has to be part of the
0: diagnosis. Mm -hmm. Dr. Perry, it's interesting because just... I would have actually thought it reversed, so I appreciate your clarification. I actually thought that dementia was a part of Alzheimer's disease um, versus the fact of Alzheimer's disease being a part of dementia. Um, so that's very helpful um, for the general public to understand this. And, you know, you can read this and you can Google it all you want, but you need to talk to George Perry and, and the scientists <laughs> so that we get the real deal of, of understanding. Very, very, you're it. very now kind. You, you, <laughs> you mentioned some of the disparities, if you would, um, in minority populations. What about gender? is there a difference in prevalence in gender uh, in Alzheimer's dementia? Yes, it
1: affects women more than men. Mm-hmm. And there's two reasons for that. One, women live longer, at least in the West. Mm-hmm. And the best way to have Alzheimer's disease is to live to advanced age. Women live usually six or seven years longer than men across the board. And that would mean they'd have a doubling of risk just from that. And then the other one is if you even adjust it for age, women are more prone to develop the disease. We don't understand why. It might be related to the differences in hormones that change during the aging process, but that's an area of research. We, we did some research on this topic and even clinical trials related to it, related to the hormone changes.
0: Well, that um, so that's very helpful. So part of that, and you mentioned, at least touched on some of the genetic aspects. If women are more predisposed to uh, the disease states, that minority populations may be more predisposed to these disease states. Age is relative. I think regardless of gender or race. So can we definitively say that the diseases, dementia, Alzheimer's and related, are genetically based? Ah, In one sense, you could
1: say that if you believed everything was genetically based because we have genes that determine us. When you get beyond that, it is really hard to understand And in fact, Mm -hmm. that's a topic I debated. I was given a debate, uh, not a topic of my choosing, to debate that genetics has not been informative for Alzheimer's disease at all. And uh, I thought, wow, this is a debate where I'm surely going to lose. (laughs) And uh, I won. Mm -hmm. I debated that the genetics has not been informative at all. We've known Mm -hmm. the significant genes. I'm talking in terms of treatment in terms of understanding the basic mechanisms of the disease, what genetics. So I'm telling you, talking more in the scientific, and then I'll back down in terms of how that impacts real people is that we know several genes, but they haven't led to a therapeutic, they haven't led to diagnostic or anything else. And we've known them for 30 years. Okay. Then if you're gonna say, well, can I know my risk of developing the disease? If you have members of your family who have early onset, like onset in the 40s, there's a good chance that you have a um, a genetic determinant. And, And if you have other family members, even more so, and most likely it would be any of three genes, presenilin one, presenilin two, and amyloid precursor protein. And if you have those mutations that are known, they're generally determinate. In other words, if you have the mutation, it's almost for sure you're going to develop the disease. Most families already know these exist in their family because they have an early onset. All of the family members that would carry it would have lived to that point. When you have an onset that's in the 80s, which is what most people, when i when people tell me about their relative, I always ask how old they are. If they're in their eighties, it's really hard to know what it means. Mm-hmm. Now beyond those rare, and those are rare mutations, less than 1% of the population, there's no accumulation of them with um, minorities, but they could run in families. Like the most famous family now is one in the country of Columbia that has hundreds of members and all of them developed the disease in their 40s. The um, most common genetic factor is the APOE genotype, E4. There's three possibilities, two, three, and four. And if you have the four, you're at much higher risk of developing the disease. If you have one, you know, everybody inherits genes from their mother and father. And if they inherit one of them from one of their parents, they have about a threefold higher risk of developing the disease. If they inherit both, they have 10 to 20 times higher risk. That doesn't mean for sure they will develop the disease, but it's a higher risk. And if you look at people that have Alzheimer's disease and the general population, 50 to 60% contain the E4 allele, is where in the general population, it's about 20%. So it's enriched. This is probably more common in some groups from Africa, uh, but it depends where they came from in Africa. And I found out that slaves didn't all come, well, number one, not everybody came as slaves. So they came from different parts of Africa. And the ones that came as slaves didn't all come from West Africa. And I went to a minority meeting in thought that and they nearly killed me for saying that so I survived um, but why I'm mentioning about uh, the African piece is that we did studies that suggested the e4 allele uh, which is one that puts people at higher risk for Alzheimer's disease is important in protection from malaria mm-hmm. and uh, it's the ancestral gene also of humans so that is, um, and we our evolution as humans is predominantly within Africa. You know, we went from Africa and spread all over the world. It's only a question of when we left, mm-hmm. right? That some people left, you know, thirty thousand years ago, and some left, you know, last week. Um, and but while we were in Africa, people are still dying of malaria so uh-huh. that's one piece and if you look in new guinea which has a lot of malaria it has much higher e4 allele um so that's a, an important genetic marker and surprisingly in in several studies it's been shown the e4 does not have much impact among hispanics for under unknown reason and that's been Don't shown know. in new york city as well as california as well as texas so it's heterogeneous with regard to Hispanics because these different Hispanic groups are you know, genetically not
0: that similar. Mm. So we've talked about the uh, genetic component, and I'll just ask this because it's what people ask. Otherwise, are there any environmental factors that contribute to Alzheimer's disease?
1: I'll mention the genetics. If you wanted to know your APOE genotype, You would just go to some place like 23andMe or any of those other places, and you could know your risk. But I think it's important to understand what it means. It doesn't mean you're going to develop the disease. I do not know my genotype and I have no desire to know because I wouldn't know what to do about it. Um, Environmental factors may play a lot uh, in these uh, differences between minority groups. But the one that's really striking, that uh, the journal I edit, Journal of Alzheimer's Disease has played a role in promoting, is the idea of air pollution. Not just any air pollution, but particularly air pollution. Air pollution that is um, particulate in nature, like the one that comes from diesel exhaust or Mm -hmm. others. Um, but it doesn't have to be only from diesel exhaust. It's small carbon particles. They actually can enter the whole body through um, unknown mechanism, but possibly the lungs or the nose. They manage to get into the brain. They manage to get into organs, and they cause inflammatory responses. And um, it's been estimated that air pollution, particularly particulate air pollution, may play a critical role in 30% of Alzheimer's disease. Wow. wow. There's also a new paper that I just, well, I shouldn't talk about that because it's not my paper. Anyway, there are people I would just say that I've heard of that have looked around at primitive uh, societies and have actually suggested that Alzheimer's disease may be a um, major cause, maybe modern lifestyle,
0: both air pollution
1: and other things like that.
0: So um, looking at some of these issues, you mentioned uh, 30%, uh, that rate, and then we'd look at public housing, where some of that public housing had been developed in major uh, urban areas around interstates, mm-hmm. if, are those kinds of housing, transportation, are, are those some of the environmental concerns that we should begin to look at in in those communities where those houses have been sit, those housing developments have been situated? Yeah, I certainly
1: that's what the 30% estimate was uh, an extreme estimate. I've talked with other people, but the person who made it was a very prominent person. Okay. So it wasn't just off, you know, uh, without a lot of thought. But I think you have to look at urban areas in general. Mm -hmm. So if you're looking at minorities living in inner cities, whether it's the housing development or living close to where a lot of trucks and other transportation uh, Mm -hmm. things are. Mm Yeah, because that's how, in fact, Dr. Finch of USC did his estimate, was looking at how close people live to transportation hubs to see if that affected things. I think there's a number of issues that affect why minorities, but this all needs to be explored, whether it's educational, whether it's stress-related, diet. Um, the list is innumerable and uh, and really needs to be addressed, but certainly you can't underrate the issue of pollution. And how do you know that they don't have different types of plumbing that still has lead in it? Lead is a neurotoxin. So there's probably innumerable things. Hispanics also have the same issues. Uh, I don't know why they do not respond uh, to the APOE genotype in having even more Alzheimer disease. Among African-Americans, they do. So there's just a lot that needs to be understood. Yeah, it you know, the air pollution one is something that's kind of surprising, and yet it's not surprising when you understand that these particles mm-hmm. actually entered
0: the body. Mm-hmm. So one of the questions I think that the public always wants to know, and you did touch on that, uh, other than genotyping, um, are there tests, Other tests available? that could help us better understand our risk for Alzheimer's? Uh,
1: Well, I think if you really want to know the risk, the genotyping is probably the best because you do it one time and you're done for life. Okay, so you don't have to continually test. If you were doing biomarkers, their quest is now marketing a biomarker, which is to my understanding is not FDA approved, Mm -hmm. but they're marketing it at, at a fairly high price. I do not think these type of tests, the, this or um, cerebral spinal fluid or amyloid imaging with PET. I don't really think that ha- provides useful information for most people, unless there's a better therapeutic. Mm. And right now so- the therapeutics that are available are very marginal
0: at best. So they must have given you my note cards because my next question um, was related to treatments that are available for Alzheimer's patients. So tell us about some of the therapeutics that are current and some of those in the pipeline. What's your thought about those?
1: I would say so far, they're not very inspiring. OK, so there's the old ones like Aricept would be an example. It's mm-hmm. a co- colinesterase inhibitor, and um, its advantage is that it doesn't have many, uh, does not have life-threatening side effects. Hmm. It does have side effects, uh, gastrointestinal side effects that often lead to its discontinuance, sometimes behavioral issues that develop. But some patients benefit from it. The benefit's marginal. Then there's a NMDA-related reagent, which is probably even less effective, but again, isn't life-threatening if carefully administered. And those are the, I could say, the old classic things. And when patients ask me or family members ask me, I actually recommend that they take them because they're not expensive, they're not threat, and they might benefit, might. Even the company claims only one-third of people benefit for one year. That's the best. Okay, then you have the new drugs that have been approved. I have very negative comments about them, and I've written a lot about it. Mainly because, number one, they do have life-threatening effects. Mm -hmm. People have died, and not died in a benign way. You know, the usual path of Alzheimer's disease is the person, if they live to the end, will pass forward in a a relatively gentle way. Mm -hmm. The person that died of this that I know of the most, because one of my colleagues did the autopsy and he was done, she died in his hospital. So he knew from the um, neurologist and the husband that she died in tremendous pain and Mm -hmm. uh had to be restrained at four points and tremendously tranquilized because she died of massive cerebral hemorrhage and uh and vascular changes And all of the trials these recent ones these are the antibodies to amyloid trials Mm -hmm. and they have been effective in removing amyloid but the patients didn't get better all it did the only claim is it changes the slope of decline Mm-hmm. statistically borderline so these tests what's important to note they have thousands of patients in it so if you have a thousand husbands or wives you're in good shape because one of them would get better it's not meaningful when you have them in a one we only have one mother one spouse in most societies in the united states and what are the chances that's going, going to really make a difference mm. in a given family member? So the benefit is small, and the risk is not huge, but it's significant. Um, mm. And this bleeding, which is a, a few percent of people have died so far, but that's within a clinical trial. It's well controlled. When this is given to people in the community, they won't be at the best treatment centers in the world because they don't exist everywhere and how will the people be followed up by mri throughout the trials mm-hmm. etc so i think you can really think that more people will suffer from it
0: so clinical trials participation of minorities and others in clinical trials is is always an important discussion. Um, what is that like for and I'm a minority, so I'm asking that question uh, what is it are minorities participating in in these Alzheimer's trials in a reasonable uh, in a reasonable at a reasonable level of participation you know this this is
1: kind of an. A very good question. A very, very good question. The answer is that was the first criticism of the first one of these to move through approval. And that was accelerated approval. Mm-hmm. That's approval mechanism where they approve a drug even if it doesn't know to work for a disease that isn't curable. And uh, they said there weren't enough minorities. And then the second one, lacanumab they did have a sufficient number of minorities. And when it was presented, they're presented as if people are discriminating against minorities. And that could be the case, but I don't think that's Mm -hmm. the reason this ends up being the case. It is mainly because when you do clinical trials, you want people that have a pure disease. In other words, pure Alzheimer's disease without strokes, without major heart problems, without the purest case. Well, those are not common among any group. And they're less common among African-Americans. African-Americans tend to have more strokes than the white population. That's going to exclude them. Um, And one of the things that is not addressed in these studies, and I've asked about these because I participated in some meetings. And I said, if you're just going to have upper middle class African-Americans, that doesn't really address the real problem. It's a socioeconomic issue. And it would be useful to include poor whites and poor African-Americans, which are the people you want to be able to take advantage of this drug. Mm -hmm. And they have comorbidities uh, because they're not as healthy. Being poor anywhere in the world makes you prone to many conditions. Mm -hmm. And um, so I think that that issue, the numbers are there in the most recent trials because they worked hard to get them. But I don't know what type of African-Americans they had. By type, I mean mm-hmm. socioeconomic issues.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, my grandmother died in 1963. And of course, it was hardening of the arteries then. Um, so <laughs> that was the diagnosis. It wasn't Alzheimer's. It was hardening of the arteries. And then I hear you talk about amyloid, So we are just, I guess it just all makes sense that now we've come to a more definitive uh, an accurate uh, definition of, of <laughs> Alzheimer's. You laugh. Tell me about that.
1: Well, because the the vascular component of Alzheimer's disease has been debated for a long time. Mm. And uh, the reason this woman died is because of blood vessel attack. I mean, mm. some people that have, well, essentially everybody who has Alzheimer's disease has vascular involvement. Mm. Some people have tremendous vascular involvement. And they have a condition called congophilic angiopathy. And all it means is there's lots of amyloid in the vessels. Mm -hmm. And what happens is the muscle layer in major vessels is replaced by amyloid. And when that happens, the vessel has nothing holding it together. Mm -hmm. And now if you remove the amyloid with an antibody, what's going to happen you're going to end up with cerebral hemorrhage Mm -hmm. so i predicted that i don't know 15 20 years ago a small note in science magazine that the likely result of all these trials would be cerebral hemorrhage but it's much more there's um, other things so also there's a a vascular insufficiency theory of alzheimer's disease that there isn't enough blood circulation but that area is fruitful for further study and still unclear.
0: Well, Dr. Perry, this is, uh, I guess, because I'm passionate about this and I sit and listen. There's just so much to know and um, so much to learn. And and thank you for um, your instructional nature and your informational nature as over the years that we've known you. So the takeaway for this conversation for those who are sharing this experience with us. What would we tell the families, um, and even without having an Alzheimer's patient, what should I be concerned about in the world of Alzheimer's disease? Yeah. Kermit, you know, all I talked about is
1: pretty doom and gloom and not looking forward because therapeutics are barely working and um, diagnostics are getting better, but what is it informed without therapeutic? All of that needs to be seen in another context. In the last decade, if not, let's say 10 to 15 years, there's been a revolution happening. And that is understanding that Alzheimer's disease, like many other age-related diseases, are chronic conditions, multifactorial, and, buttress lifestyle. They're not determinate genetic diseases, and maybe for the people you know that have the mutations like the presenilin-1, maybe it is, but even those patients didn't benefit from moving amyloid. Even those. So it isn't as simple as the amyloid story, but diet, exercise, stress reduction, all the things you do in life, having a reason to be alive, as you clearly do, Kermit, all of those things um, play a major role in reducing Alzheimer's disease. Estimates are between 50 to 90%. That doesn't mean getting it to zero. So if you point to somebody and say, wow, they did all those things, and now they're demented, and next question is how old? Well, they're, you know, they're 95 Well, at 95, your probability is quite high. But the main thing is, uh, and several people have written books about this in the last couple of years about things you can do. And they're as simple as four things, or as complicated if you want to do all of them as 36. It's again, diet, exercise, and we're not talking about strenuous exercise, but not just being a couch potato, working, walking a bit every day. Um, having a reason to be alive and stress reduction. And as you know, Kermit, one of the issues that minorities experience in early life is stress, you know, related to uncertainties in their condition in life. And those changes in early life can be permanent. So do I have a remedy for any of this? No. But I do say those are something you can do. It doesn't mean you won't develop the disease, but you can lower your risk. After you develop your dis- the disease, and what really and, um, can make a huge difference is realizing there's still people. And, you know, they're only reduced to something that's less than a person, you know, at full cognition at the very end phase of the disease. They're still there. And... Um, there are people who have written ways to care for patients, and a lot of those ways of caring for patients actually reduce cost and are better for families. The patients don't need to be incarcerated into nursing homes. Uh, but it. And another piece is don't just accept a diagnosis and a prescription for Aricept. Older people have lots of other health problems that are quite pronounced depression. Depression can ma- increases your risk of developing Alzheimer's disease and is associated with Alzheimer's disease as well as other behavioral. So I mm-hmm. recommend getting the best diagnosis you can get and not just you know accepting they're demented and they're old. Well, they may be demented and they're old, but you, it's best to find out maybe they're eating cookies all day. And they're B12 deficient. Mm-hmm. And that can happen. Is it? Is everybody B12 deficient? No, but a certain percentage are. And mm-hmm. when they're B12, it's very hard to get the level up. It might take injections or other treatments, but they're not terribly expensive or involved. So really knowing that. And I would recommend seeing a psychiatrist or somebody that's more u- humanistic. Mm-hmm to really mm-hmm. find out in in dealing with the symptoms that the reason patients end out in nursing homes is not because of loss of cognition you can still love and have an IQ of 50 the mm-hmm. problem is that uh if you're you know violent or wandering or any of these it makes it very mm-hmm. difficult for families to manage mm-hmm. people mm-hmm. so really get some guidance and there mm-hmm. guidance from professionals that are sensitive to what needs to be done.
0: Well, um, Dr. Perry, I think we've heard um, these four important uh, better activities, diet, exercise, reducing stress. But the most important part about this discussion, I think, is that we should have a reason to be alive and understanding. Um, That there is a reason to be alive. I shared with you earlier, my mother's 90 years old. Um, She has dementia on some days. We say that because, you know, you get what you get. And I'm reminded, I talked to her just yesterday and she told me, she said, you know, the sun is out today and it's just Absolutely beautiful. And I'm just so glad that I'm alive. So we thank you for that encouragement. Alzheimer's is not an always an encouraging discussion, but this has certainly been an encouraging discussion. We thank you for your commitment to Alzheimer's disease. And you know that we'll see you and talk to you later. We thank you so very much. We've been joined today by Dr. George Perry. Dr. Perry is one of the leading research scientists on Alzheimer's disease. He's at the University of Texas, San Antonio. George, it's been my pleasure to speak to you again. And thank you for helping us celebrate our Beyond 20. And for those of you also in our viewing audience, stay tuned for the balance of our podcast. As always, we say be kind be compassionate and now Dr. Perry has told us that we there is a reason for us to be alive. Thank you very much. Talk to you soon Dr. Perry.
1: Thank you very much. Great to work with you.
0: This edition of Beyond 20 is a Life Beat podcast sponsored by One Joshua Group, your strategic source of engagement to improve life through better health, education and information. For more information Visit us at theonejoshuagroup.com or follow our work on LinkedIn, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter using hashtag OneJGCollabs. One Joshua Group, building capacity, expanding resources, joining what you know with what we've learned.